today's Hubbard and O'Brien Economics Podcast. We're recording this one on Friday, September 4th, 2020. I'm Tony O'Brien. I'm a professor of economics at Lehigh University. Joining me as always is my co-author, Glenn Hubbard, who is a professor of finance and economics at Columbia University. We're very pleased to have with us today, Jadrian Wooten. Jadrian is an associate teaching professor at Penn State. He received a DBA and an MBA in management economics from Sam Houston State and a PhD in economics from Washington State. He's done some very interesting work on using media in teaching principles of economics. You should check out his website, economicsmedialibrary.com, which has short clips from movies and television shows that illustrate economic principles. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. Glenn, Jadrian, how are you both today? Doing great, thanks. I'm doing really well, Tony, thank you. Excellent, thanks so much for coming on. I thought we might begin by asking you, uh, Jadrian, about teaching online. Are there things you discovered in teaching online last spring that have led you to make changes in how you're teaching this fall? The short answer, yes. So I have really started to think about the rules that I've placed on my classes, and I didn't do that before. I really just kind of followed the same pattern every semester, and I replicated what worked before, and switching online has really made me reconsider what I would consider probably arbitrary rules, but things like due dates, extensions, makeup work, um, and just trying to think about what kind of works best in this new environment. So for example, I used to have, my econ lab was always due the night we finished a lesson. And it worked on, on campus because I kind of always knew how things were gonna go and uh, I could see if they were progressing at the right pace. But now I realize that that doesn't necessarily work well online where if they're not able to come to class for whatever reason, they may not know that we finished a lesson. And so they won't know that there's an uh, a homework due that night. And so just even things like that of just changing how I'm doing due dates um, is different than previous semesters, but I think fits this new environment. And now that I've really thought about it, it's probably how I should have been doing it the whole time. And so it's, it's really made me reconsider some of the rules I've put in place. Can I ask you to follow up on that, Jadrian? What about things like chunking material. You know, when, when you're on Zoom, basically you can't just do 60 or 90 minutes in a row on something with students, or at least that's what I find. Has it changed the way you've chunked material in a class or the way you present it, you know, slides versus lecture? I mean, how, how does it change what you do? So I wouldn't say that I've asked, I haven't actually really changed my process, partly because I was always doing that chunking in class. Um, so when we were in a regular classroom, we would have a couple slides, we'd stop for a video clip, answer a clicker question, do a think pair share, come back, do a couple more slides. And so I tried to replicate my Zoom classes very similarly to how I'm doing them in person. Uh, and we're taking the same approach. So we'll do a couple slides, we'll stop, have a poll question in Zoom rather than using a clicker. We're not doing the think pair shares. Um, I'm doing a lot more things with like an iPad and working with them, but I'm able to still ask them to answer questions through a poll so that they can still kind of get some of that pen to paper work. So I haven't made changes, but I do think the chunking part is important, whether you're on campus or online. What about speakers? You know, some people I know, and I've done this myself, have used Zoom as a way to bring people to class that would have been hard to get before. You know, I can get somebody for 20 or 30 minutes. They don't have to get on an airplane or even in a taxi to come see me. Have you done any of that? 
So good story. Part of the reason why we had to start this podcast a little later was I had a speaker in the class before mine and I knew that it wouldn't finish right at 11. So if it was any other class, I would have cut it a couple minutes short maybe so that we could do the podcast, but I knew that people were going to ask him questions. Um, so yes, I have actually uh, scheduled in some speakers this semester. Um, you know, I've, I've taken out material that I thought was maybe not necessarily relevant to particular classes. So that's mainly my upper level course. So I, I also teach labor economics. So the speaker I had today was Rio Toshiro from the Philadelphia Federal Reserve. And he was able to come in and talk about labor market characteristics of our district and how things have changed. And I think it provides a really nice perspective to what students are seeing in the news. He can come in and say, well, here's how the Fed is looking at it. Um, and so that was, that's what we were doing just before this. So that was amazing. In my principal's classes, I'm inviting back former students to come and talk for 20, 30 minutes and just share their experience, what their job is, why they picked econ, what clubs they can get involved in, and just kind of showing them what an econ major looks like. And I, I, I think you're right. I think bringing in speakers, I, I couldn't do it on campus as regularly. I can bring in some amazing speakers uh, through Zoom. Yeah, well, we'd all love to know what the Fed's thinking. We, we could change our portfolios in, in real time. But I know you've done a lot of work, too. You mentioned clips before. You've done a lot of work bringing the media into the classroom uh, using clips. How do you do that? Is it just as punctuation between your chunks, as you put it, or some other strategy? I take two approaches. So one key approach is an introductory type approach where if it's a concept I know they're going to struggle with a little bit, I'll show them as a clip so that they can recognize the relationships So something like opportunity cost. If I can show them a clip from Along Came Polly where he's talking about putting pillows on the bed and how much time he spends in his life putting pillows on, his, on and off his bed, it lets them see an example before I really get in and start talking about, well, here's explicit costs and implicit costs and revenue, and it helps introduce a topic. Those kind of questions I typically will just show and then introduce the concepts behind it. If it's something where I've taught for a little bit and I know there's some calculations or some common misperceptions, I'll usually teach a little bit, show a video clip, and then follow up with a Zoom poll. And so basically watch this video. What do you think will happen next? Where do you think they did something wrong if they have like a common error or something like that? And so I kind of, I would say I, I, I bookend them a lot of times. So. I'll use media as an intro and also as a kind of a follow-up as a little review of a, of a chunk that we would have just done. Let me follow up on one thing, Jadrian, on online teaching. As you know, a lot of instructors struggle with grading. Now, have you hit on a method that you're satisfied with and your students are satisfied with? I'm hesitant to talk about how lucky I am. You know, it's, it's one of those things when I talk to people, I always talk about how many students I have in my classes. I have two principal sections with 400 students each. And then I have a labor economics class that has about 140. And so normally when I share that with anybody, their eyes explode, like they can't imagine that many people. But I also have 30 undergraduate assistants that help me grade, help me manage chat. So they're in the chat logs. They're answering chat and Q&A during Zoom. We use Packback for our online discussion boards, which are, it uses artificial intelligence to kind of score the quality of their writing but my undergraduate assistants are going in and making sure they're on topic and that they're actually kind of following the course of the semester. But they're also in there providing feedback that I just don't have time to do, to go in and say, hey, you're doing a good job. That's a really good question. So I have a crazy workload, but I also have a crazy amount of undergraduate help that really helps me get through it. The best advice I've 
kind of tailored towards that though, Tony, is I've simplified my grading a lot in the sense of like even short answer quizzes, instead of kind of grading it out of a hundred percent, I just go, it's one, two, or three. A three is a perfect score. Two, you're really close. You're almost there. One, you're pretty far off, but you turned something in and zero, you didn't turn it in. And you know, it works out pretty well because you can kind of easily distribute the threes and the ones. Uh, and it's the ones in the middle, the twos that are a little harder, but it, it kind of, it cuts out a lot of the grading because you can kind of quickly see what is, what is good and what isn't. You know, just even just simple things like that. It, it makes it way easier than trying to distinguish what's the difference between an 82 and a 78. And grade-wise, it works out okay. At the end of the semester, the average is still about the same. Some students get a two out of three, which, you know, is a 67%. That's not a great score. But the idea is they're not going to get very many of them. And a lot of times they're going to get 100. And so at the end of the semester, they end up kind of with a regular grade that they probably would have gotten if we graded it out of a 100% scale. So simplifying the grading has been the easiest thing that I've done. Um, making the homework smaller, not having as many questions, things like that. So do you not give like a final exam and midterms or? I do. Yeah. So I still do that. So. Uh, I'm giving my midterms, my midterms and finals and my principles course are going to be through my econ lab and a little bit through Canvas. So they're going to use the my econ lab testing feature to do kind of the calculation portion. Mm -hmm. And then the Canvas part, uh, my students will answer the short answer questions in Canvas. It's hard to get 30 graders into my econ lab and tell them who to grade and stuff like that. Uh, so I still do that in my principles course and my upper level course. It's a project based course. So they're doing Tableau projects throughout the semester. And then their final project is they have to create a website, put all of their material online and kind of present the stuff that they've done throughout the semester. And so that's been a big change in the upper side, but it's, you know, it's taken rid of, it's gotten rid of the exams, which I think, especially in this new online environment, we're seeing this move towards projects, small stakes assignments. And that's really helped kind of reduce the stress of that course. Uh, they have a lot more buy-in up front because they know they can work on a project over a long period of time. Great. I know you've done a lot of work, Jadrian, on the economics of sports. Mm -hmm. And right now, whether it's pro sports or uh, college sports, obviously there are big changes going on as there are elsewhere in the economy. And now you've got Big Ten and Pac-12 and some other conferences, including the little tiny Ivy League one that Columbia plays with uh, or the Patriot League for Lehigh. Everybody's postponing their fall sports. So what effect is this going to have on local areas and economies like State College? Yeah, this is, this is a very popular thing. As soon as anybody finds out I'm a sports economist, this is, this is the question. And this is the question that I have to burst bubbles with. You know, sports is very important from a social standpoint, psychological standpoint, happiness standpoint. Absolutely. Sports uh, in general is kind of a moneymaker is pretty small. So just even looking at Penn State, uh, last athletic year, uh, they brought in $184 million in revenue. And so they, because they have to report to the Department of Education, they report all of their revenue numbers. Most of that is football. Some of it's basketball, some of it's hockey, stuff like that. But the lion's share of that is football. Um, so $184 million. The budget for Penn State last year was $7 billion. And so you're looking at something like even if you took out all of athletics, it's two and a half percent of the budget. Um, a large chunk of the Penn State budget is the medical facility, the hospital that's in Hershey. And so if you take out even that part, the, rev the revenue side of sports comes up to like four percent. 
Um, it's just, it's a relatively small component of kind of the overall mission of the university. And so what I've always kind of argued is having students on campus in a community is significantly more important. Um, they're here every day spending money and they tend, we tend to forget about them. You know, we take them for granted the fact that they're, they're eating at Taco Bell and that they're paying rent in their apartment every single month. But somebody who's coming for a football game maybe is paying for a hotel room uh, two weekends out of the year. And a lot of that money is going back towards, you know, Holiday Inn's corporate office or the Marriott's corporate office. That money's not staying. The hotel money is not staying in State College. And so there are definitely people who are impacted. Everything's kind of shrunk down a little bit. But I think the idea that the system is going to just collapse, that State College is not going to exist. And some people make that argument, which is always really surprising that State College is just going to like crater because there's no football games is a little naive. Um, the students on campus, they're still going to go to bars. Uh, the money that they would have spent on Saturday and tailgating, they're going to spend downtown um, at a bar and they're still going to hold parties. They're not going to stop spending money just because there's no football games. And a lot of those, a lot of the people coming in, you know, they're, a lot of them are not spending money in State College. So the stadium holds about 107,000 people. We don't have even close to that many hotel rooms. Uh, a lot of people are driving up the day of the game, parking and tailgating, and then driving home. And so they're bringing food from Philadelphia. They're bringing gas from Philadelphia. They're not, they're not buying their beer here. They're not eating at restaurants here. They may pick up some food on the way, but it's, it's not everyone who, if they disappear, it's, it's, I don't think it's as bad as people think it is. So it'll take a hit to smaller businesses. The people, I, I'm getting ready to talk about it in the principal's class. Those businesses that are real close to zero profit, that are just barely making it, um, they may get hit. So we, uh, one of our businesses closed over the summer. It was the seventh chain of a pizza place that's local here. But they still have six other chains, six other locations that are open through town. So, you know, we lose a pizza place, but we still have six more of that one chain in town. And so it's, it, those are the ones that are most affected. It's the people who invested in an Airbnb uh, ready for football season and they invested in their home and they're not getting to rent it out. Well, they can, but they're not going to rent it out for the same price that they were before. So from a sports econ perspective, smaller than what people think, but it's hard to trivialize that when people are still impacted. Waiters aren't making as much uh, as they would normally. There are some people being let go from just kind of the general COVID environment. Uh, not necessarily the lack of football um, that's happening. And so I think that's the problem is I think people are mixing the two um, and saying, you know, it's a football impact, but really it's a, it's a COVID impact as well. Yeah, let me follow up on that if I might. I mean, I agree. I think New York will probably survive the loss of Columbia football. I'm not sure, but I, I think perhaps <laughs> well, even the jet, yeah. Uh, you, you mentioned, you know, small businesses that were just, you know, right at the margin or of course mm -hmm. are more likely to fail. Is there a lot of student interest in that in the current environment? So, for example, things like the Paycheck Protection Program were aimed at small and mid-sized businesses. Obviously, there's a large increase in unemployment as well from those businesses and discussions of unemployment insurance. Are you hearing a lot of that either in principals or your labor econ class? They're not talking about it yet. And so some of it could just be that it's so new. Uh, well, class is so new um, yeah. that they, they don't know where it's really fitting in. So some of them, you know, we're on the supply and demand chapter. They clearly recognize that this is having an impact on demand. And they're starting to think about the spillover effects. A lot of them know that something's off. And I just don't think they realize how, how much it's off. And I think a lot of that comes from 
not having a lot of first gen students. So a lot of their parents probably are still working um, they're, or working from home at least. They're still able to eat. So they know the restaurants are open. They know the fast food place, everything's still open. And they, I, they may be having trouble connecting that like those restaurants have fewer waiters than they used to. They have some fewer employees than they used to because in their mind, it's still open. Um, and so I think that's probably the hardest part is to figure out, kind of separate out what they can see and what they can't see and just how big that unseen portion actually is. But no, we haven't talked about it yet. The closest, actually the, the bulk of what we talk about and Tony's maybe similar is the rules that the governor is putting in place. And my guess is that even in Colombia it would be similar to what the governor is doing in New York. They can more clearly observe the rules about like 50% capacity or that you can't actually be at a bar. You have, you, you're not allowed in Pennsylvania, you're not allowed to be sitting at a bar or you have to always order food, right? Those, those kind of rules. Those are ones they're observing kind of weekly. And so they recognize they walk in and all of a sudden like there's half as many tables. So I think they're making more connections at kind of the state impact rather than what the federal government is doing or not doing to help people. Well, my wife and I are big fans of the governor of Pennsylvania because Pennsylvania had camp for my kid which uh, okay. New York did not allow. So kudos, uh, kudos uh, to the state. Do you think that COVID is going to change much of the way you teach? We talked about process before and Zoom, but in terms of content, you know, the depression completely changed economics teaching okay. for a very long time. And even during the financial crisis, a lot of professors were like, I, I got to change the way I'm talking about things. This is a shock that's too big. For COVID, it strikes me there's both a lot of micro and macro examples. So in micro, are there things mm -hmm. that are going to change for you? I'm doing my best not to change them. Um, you know, I, I talked with some people about it, especially when things really happened. So in the spring, I was teaching an environmental course. And the first introduction that I can remember of the COVID situation was when Italy was locking down. And there were all these reports coming out of like the air quality being cleaner in Italy because everybody was inside and they weren't driving. And so it was great for my natural resource course. And then as it started to, as the waves kind of came to us, all of a sudden, you know, all the discussions on the discussion board were about kind of that impact. And then some of the students noticed that I wasn't talking about it in the Zoom lectures. And so there was one person who kind of brought it up and said like, hey, why aren't we talking about this? This is huge. Why are you not having an impact? And then the responses from the other students in the class were basically like, thank God he's not talking about it because I hear it in the news. My parents are talking about it. It's on Facebook and it's on Twitter and it's in my other classes. And my class kind of became this place where we could talk about economics. We knew things were happening, but it didn't have to be the center of our conversation. And I think, I definitely think it's topical. So, you know, in my labor class, when I'm talking about unemployment, I can't not talk about that spike. And so, it, it's not that I'm avoiding talking about it. It's I'm trying to make sure I talk about it when the data supports it. And I guess the content supports the need to talk about it. And so I, I know like when I get to the shortages section of, of teaching principles, I don't want to bring up that there was a shortage of toilet paper. I don't want to remind people that for like a two week period, we struggled to figure out if we could like operate as a society. I don't want to try, I don't want to remind them of that when I could just as easily talk about shortages for you know, tickets to a football game when they sell out super fast. And so I, I'm going to try to take a very cautious approach to talking about it when the data warrants it. But if it's just being used as an example, you know, an increase in demand for hand sanitizers, 
I, I'm, I'm going to try to avoid it um, if I can. And then that way, if they want to talk about it in discussion boards, they can always talk about it there. If they want to talk to me personally about it in office hours, happily talk about it. Uh, but in class, I'm going to try to make it a, a COVID-free environment. That way they have a little break for an hour where they don't have to just constantly be reminded of what's going on. And I, you know, I've caught myself even the first week trying to make sure I don't, that I try not to remind them that this isn't normal. Uh, so I, I caught myself saying, you know, normally if we were in class and I kept, I, I heard myself saying that over and over. And I, I, after one class, I just said, they know this isn't normal. I don't know why I'm reminding them that this isn't normal. Uh, so I've gotten much better about trying to change the language and say like, you know, this is what we have. Here's what, it, here's what it's going to be like. And this, this is the only class they know about if they're freshmen. So, you know, that's, I would say that's my approach is just trying to change the frame. I'm reframing it, right? In economics terms, I'm going to frame it differently uh, than I normally would. Well, we'll all have to learn from you on that because I'm about to teach next week in a mask to a room full of people wearing masks. Mm -hmm. And I'll try not to say normal time. <laughs> normally, normally. You'll, so I would say go, go teach how you normally would and you'll yeah. hear how often no, I'm you sure catch I yourself saying it. Well, it's um, just little things like they can't see me smile. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, so it's, yeah, it, it'll be, uh, it'll be interesting. Jadrian, we talked uh, some about changing content in the online teaching. Are there also changes in delivery that you've thought about? So I'm actually sitting while I talk to you and I noticed that in the spring, whenever I was delivering my Zoom lectures, I would lean to the side and it was just a really bad habit because I was trying to get comfortable and talk and I kept leaning and then I immediately noticed how much my back hurt. It's like, this is incredibly painful to do this. And so the past two weeks, I have actually taught standing up because that's the way I normally teach. I don't teach sitting down. So before the semester started, I had bought a standing desk or a standing desk converter so that I could sit and stand. And I actually even bought a lapel mic so that I could like run it up my shirt and clip to my shirt like I would on campus. And recreating the classroom environment, even through Zoom, the students noticed. Uh, because if you, you can immediately tell through a Zoom call if someone is sitting or leaning back or leaning over. But if you're standing up, you're much more confident. You can project a lot better. You can still use your hands and it doesn't feel super weird. Um, and so I think in terms of delivery through Zoom, the closest you can replicate how you normally teach um, will really benefit almost any teacher um, because we're just so used to standing when we teach that as soon as you ask somebody to sit down, you're going to start getting kind of uncomfortable when you're, you're trying to be comfortable, but you're going to get uncomfortable. And so that has actually been the biggest change that it, like for me personally, I guess, health wise of just being able to stand while I deliver and it's replicated my class really, really well. Uh, and I think that it's going to, it's going to provide a long-term benefit um, health wise as well. And so it's a standing desk converter is relatively cheap uh, and that's made a huge, huge impact on my teaching. Yeah, when I taught by Zoom this summer, I, I taught from an empty classroom and yeah. it actually was more, com even though it was just me in the room, it was more comfortable. I was used to standing the way I would stand, mm -hmm. writing on the board the way I would write on a board with cameras trained on it. So I agree with you, just sitting and staring at something for 90 minutes is hard. It's very awkward when you first do it because you're staying, like I teach in a webinar so that none of their videos are turned on and, you know, not getting those cues and not understanding like whether they really get it or not. 
it's, I can kind of forget about it at least when I'm standing because it feels like I'm still teaching versus if I'm sitting, I feel like I'm in a meeting, which is much different uh, in terms of delivery of content. That's excellent advice because I think for everyone, the default for Zoom has been sitting, but mm-hmm. right, standing that, has a lot to be said for it. Yeah, that's how I started. And then, yeah, within a couple of weeks, my back just, I, I was like crossing my leg underneath it and I was leaning sideways. It was just all, it was a mess. So I, I brought my office chair up. So I have an actual office chair. I'm sitting at a dining room table, but I have a standing desk converter. So it's, I'm not actually at a desk, but yeah, having an actual office chair, it was super helpful. Um, and standing was really big. Great. Thanks so much, Jadrian, for joining us today. A reminder to listeners, this podcast is now available on iTunes. If you would like, you can subscribe and make us part of your podcast feed. Please also keep checking our blog at hubbardobrieneconomics.com where we periodically post new content. You can subscribe to the blog to receive email alerts about new posts. Thanks again to everyone for joining us for this conversation. We look forward to connecting with instructors and students again on a future Hubbard and O'Brien Economics podcast.